Hello, and welcome to the US-China Conversation. I'm Michael Vatikiotis, Asia Director at the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue. After a break, I'm pleased to return as host for this series of podcasts that seeks to understand the issues that divide the US and China and find ways to narrow these differences for the sake of peace. I'm also delighted that we resume the series in partnership with the Center for International Security and Strategy at Tsinghua University in Beijing. The technology sphere has become a significant arena for US-China competition. If this was purely about corporate competition and the race to achieve innovative excellence and win market share, the world might benefit. But instead, concerns about intellectual property and national security have begun to divide the tech world into two spheres, with the US taking the lead on using legal and other measures to lock Chinese firms out of Western markets and cut them off from Western technology. With a strong push from the previous US administration, the world of 5G has already fractured into opposing camps. Countries, including the US, Japan, Australia, Sweden, and the UK, have shut the Chinese tech company Huawei out of their 5G networks. Whereas Russia, the Philippines, Thailand, and some countries in Africa and the Middle East welcome Chinese 5G technology. To discuss this emerging techno-cold war, I'm joined by Lindsay Shepard, Fellow of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, and Yu Yang, Assistant Professor at the Institute for Interdisciplinary Information Sciences at Tsinghua University. It looks like a new and alarming development in the confrontation between the United States and China has opened up. The Federal Communications Commission, or the FCC, has labeled five Chinese telecommunications companies, including Huawei and ZTE, a threat to national security. Lindsay, has this indeed opened up a new front in the emerging Cold War theater? It's important to recognize, you know, as we're thinking through what signals does this send, is that this is not all politics and partisan rhetoric. So not every action in this space can be written off as partisan or, or viewed as actions that would necessarily be reversed by the Biden administration simply because they were put in place by the Trump administration. I think you know, we will continue to see competition along technology lines because, in fact, technology is a national security issue for the United States. And as these technologies become more intertwined, more data-dependent, more connected, that trend will certainly continue. Yu Yang, speaking as an academic, do you think there's a way to build a regulatory framework to manage this issue of security so that it doesn't become too confrontational? Of course. I think the most important thing is we in academia have cross-country collaboration and the conversation, and we know each other. We must tell the people the truth. So the thing is, uh, how can we build up an international institution, which include not just uh, academia, of course we know the knowledge, but also from the politician, the industry, and the people together to formulate this kind of cross-national trust. So there's a systematic approach, there's an academic approach to analyze the risks of the algorithm, the risks of the system. That is measurable. So we just need an institution globally to build up the trust and authority. But that's very well, and it sounds like a simple solution to have a global 
platform or a global institution to regulate these things. But there's so much distrust now built up. The U.S. suspects that Chinese firms operating in the U.S. are gathering sensitive data to share with the Chinese government and are a threat to U.S. national security. How easy is it to sort of build trust on the other side using, as you said, regulatory platforms, sharing of code, because the direction seems to be set. The distrust is there and the perception and the view of officials now in the U.S. is that Chinese technological firms are gathering such data and are a threat to national security. I think this kind of distrust between two nations is understandable because this is new technology. The administration, the Congress in all countries, their teams are from economics, are from social science, history. There are very few congressmen or senators all around the world have a team with computer science engineer who know the system, who know the communication, who know the algorithm, who know artificial intelligence. This kind of gap is an institutional trouble for all of the world. And on the other side, the people are also distrust of both the big companies and the politicians. We need a new institution to build up the trust. So, Lindsay, what do you think of that? I mean, what do you think in terms of this approach to addressing the perceived or actual threats to national security? Is there a regulatory framework that can be built to address this? I mean, we saw that the Chinese firm TikTok did make adjustments to the way that it operates to try and address these concerns. What do you think it would take for Chinese technology firms to gain more trust and ease these national security concerns in the U.S.? Well, I would also like to say uh, first that I think we have found our first point of agreement is that we both feel strongly that we need more STEM professionals, science, technology, engineering, mathematics in traditional policymaking and decision-making spheres to unpack the next generation telecommunications example, particularly in the case of critical national infrastructure, uh, the United States and other nations have continued to identify significant issues in the Huawei engineering processes and inconsistency across the products, including in software development and cybersecurity. Having an openness and transparency as products and processes are evaluated and developed so that operators and nations deploying this technology to really see into that process. And then the second piece is having a responsiveness and assurance that issues are satisfactorily resolved and addressed throughout the engineering and product lifecycle. And from a you know, purely technical standpoint, this is one way in which we can build trust in products, ensure that they are, are secure by design. I mean, you both are saying that there's a need for the science to be at the front end of this decision making and for the science to inform the political decisions, the scientists. And as you point out, there's a great deal of distrust and mistrust publicly in some of the ways in which the companies are using data in in both countries and across the world. How then do you fashion a policy that puts science in the driving seat? Uh, Lindsay, why don't you answer that question first? I would again point to this issue of the telecommunications. I mean, we can kind of dive into the decision-making process from the UK from the GCHQ, Government Communications Headquarters. GCHQ being an arm of British intelligence that looks at signals intelligence traditionally, right? Mm -hmm. Correct. While I think it did get very politicized when it kind of hit the mainstream news media, 
the reality is that this was a years-long evaluation of a very complex telecommunications stack of technologies, so a variety of technologies that are built together and interact together. And we would see through the evaluations that were made public from GCHQ that were put out to the public was the technical assessment was actually driving that decision-making, that they were raising issues and were seeking to address issues with Huawei. And it was only until that issue kind of became more mainstream that I think that technical aspect did get a little lost in the fray. But it is reassuring to see, you know, looking into the decision-making bodies, the standard-setting organizations, that these are actually technical discussions that have been occurring over years, just kind of outside of the main view of that kind of high-level policy discourse. Meanwhile, this all seems to be getting a little worse because straying a little bit further from the issue of national security and data security, now um, have the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission setting new rules that would delist Chinese tech companies from American stock exchanges if they don't comply with U.S. auditing standards. And here the problem seems to be about ownership. The rules require Chinese firms to prove to the SEC that they're not owned by foreigners or have connection with the Chinese Communist Party. Lindsay, is this a significant escalation? I would say it is a strong signal that we are seeing a coalescing from both the White House and from Congress around a kind of a coherent strategy to address longstanding issues that the U.S. has had with China, particularly, you know, or kind of in general, those practices that have impeded that foreign access to a Chinese domestic market while advantaging Chinese companies abroad. And we have seen broad bipartisan support for a variety of measures in recent years to address CCP influence in private companies in China, to address the presence and influence of foreign investment in U.S. firms. And we are also seeing, you know, from this recent SEC that, you know, technology companies are not exempt simply by being technology companies and being at the fore of research and development. Yang, what impact do you think this will have, these new rules will have on Chinese tech companies? And will there be retaliation? Could American firms operating in China be affected? Scientists are also human beings. They can also collude with politicians and uh, big firms. They can also be corruption. So how can we guarantee the scientists to tell us the truth? Okay, that means we need a mechanism. When we're talking about the institution, that means we need a mechanism design, and we also have some new technologies to help this kind of system. So what I'd like to say two things. First, we need scientists globally organized by institution with mechanism design. This mechanism design guarantee the scientists tell us the truth. Second, we must use modern technologies like blockchain, like other crypto tools, like the federal computation system to build up this kind of trust system supported by math, supported by technologies. So let me throw back to Lindsay in terms of, would you think that the US would join such a scheme, such a system of ensuring that there is a way of judging, a way of monitoring these issues independently? Well, I would first like to point out that algorithms are made by people and data is gathered on people. And so these systems and models 
are not flawless um, and they do often reflect our biases that we kind of build in. Unfortunately, it is a reality that particularly in the machine learning community and artificial intelligence is having to grapple with. So I would caution us quite strongly from turning everything over to the algorithms. You know, I do think that there is a need to base decision-making, particularly in the national security sphere, on sound technical analysis. And I do see a willingness, you know, on the part of the United States also to engage in existing bodies that are founded in technical analysis and technical standards. So I don't know if we need to have a wholesale creation of new regulatory bodies. You seem to disagree, Yuan. I must say yes and no. So the point I agree with Lindsay said is the capability of algorithm is limited. But the other side I want to say that is we know the limit by math. So that's the point. The difference between human beings and the algorithm system is algorithm system can be fully analyzed by math. On the other side, like as I mentioned, the blockchain system and a modern crypto system, their characteristics are fully understand. The trouble of those kind of system is not uh, transparency, so they are, they are really transparent. But the problem is they are hard to operate. We still need some technology innovation to implement it. Another thing I want to emphasize is I do not mean just to throw out everything to the algorithm. If we see the current global regulations on the security of web page, it is a combination of human organization and crypto system. So it is a combination of algorithm system and human system together to work between the collaboration between human beings and algorithm together to regulate international issue. This kind of international governance system support the global online payment system, the global web page security. I think this is a very good example for us to discuss, for example, for like data security, communication system security. We really can use those kind of algorithm system like crypto system to demonstrate whether there exists a risk. This has been a really interesting discussion and I'd love to spend the whole time on dehumanizing the multilateral system, since humans are clearly not doing very well at it. But let me try and bring this back to the real world. What we've discussed so far seems to be moving in two directions. One, of course, China is now going to start to look for more technological self-reliance. We will probably see policies and measures that will translate into China trying to acquire more of a technology that it can build for itself without having to rely on external technology. And at the same time in the United States, we're likely to see a policy that we probably haven't seen since wartime to ensure technological supremacy. So first of all, Lindsay, I mean, how do you see this shaping out in terms of the translation into manufacturing and industrial policy? I do think we have moved beyond this approach that we can just totally decouple the United States and China, um, that this full decoupling is neither feasible nor is it really in our interests. But I think we are seeing a narrowing in on either a, a parcel decoupling, a disengagement or detangling around certain specific activities or other areas. I think two examples most recently have kind of brought this out uh, and shown this to be a critical issue for both China and the United States. One, the impact and disruption from COVID-19, 
showed us a variety of weaknesses and single points of failure within global supply chains. And before that, looking at kind of a single point of failure or kind of bottleneck in the supply chains around semiconductor manufacturing and semiconductor technology. So I do think it's inevitable that that we will move in this direction of partial decoupling or bifurcation of supply chains, because we have seen, you know, both nations have stated that we do want to see uh, moving away from dependence on foreign technology. The incoming Biden administration has made this a, a very early priority with its focus on supply chain resiliency, you know, just beyond technical areas. The executive order on America's supply chains uh, requires a variety of federal agencies to systemically investigate their supply chains, looking at critical goods and materials, critical minerals, and other essential goods and technologies. Because I think the recent years, um, particularly as we said, COVID and this you know, very topical debate on semiconductors has revealed that the global supply chains, while wide, while interconnected, do have single points of failure and weaknesses that are, are certainly not international interests. You young, I mean, do you think that uh, China is going to move very quickly to develop more self-reliance in technology, i.e. chip making? First of all, I must say that before 2020, a lot of Chinese people really believe the globalization. That means we know we are part of the global supply chain and we do not need to produce everything ourselves. This is what Chinese people believe before 2020. There's two things I want to emphasize. One is COVID-19 is a threat. You know, it's just an accident. It's a risk management issue for global supply chain. We should not overreact to this kind of risk issue. Yes, we should prepare for the risk. You know, we have some research about risk management. We should prepare for the risks. But it not mean that one accident will lead to the reshuffle of the global supply chain. The second thing is, once we have this kind of natural disaster, consequently, there are some human beings overreaction. That's another threat for the resilience of the human being society. So the thing is, when we have this kind of negative shock, and if we can collaborate, we can rebuild the global supply chain, and the human society can recover more quickly than the current situation, the whole world can be more resilient. Well, Yu Yang, let me just challenge you on that a little bit, because you're right, the threats that face us globally, require everyone to come together and pool technology and and do things more effectively in a coordinated manner. But as we've seen with the vaccines for COVID-19, these have become divisive in and of themselves. You have one kind of vaccine being made in the United States or in Europe, another vaccine being made in China, and then the governments themselves criticizing the efficacy of those vaccines as if it's a conflict. And, you know, this is, as you said, something that's happened since the whole tech bifurcation and decoupling debate, the decoupling of COVID vaccines, for instance. Lindsay, I mean, I I know and I I recognize that in the United States, there is this fear of a loss of primacy, a loss of technological edge, the fear that China, a growing power, is gaining uh, the capacity to defeat the United States militarily, if you take it to its logical extension. Doesn't there come a point, though, where really people do have to sit down and do things together? Yu Yang's point about global health, I don't think that there is an implication in a push for supply chain resiliency 
that people cannot sit down and do things together. But it is exactly, you know, as we pointed out, the COVID revealed that the system was not resilient to shocks, that it did have critical weaknesses and single points of failure. And I think it is a, a right and correct response to say, how do we move forward and how do we then prepare that supply chain for a, a shock or a, a potential unforeseen circumstance? It is not, and this is where I think we get into this debate between is it a full-scale decoupling, which I think we have moved beyond, is that it is not a complete and total separation, but it is looking at areas that are of critical interest that we cannot afford to have these single points of failure. I'll give you an example from the computer science world that I think we can roll up. When you're doing software development, there is a kind of colloquialism that is called a bus number. And on your team of scientists and developers, each person has a bus number. If I have a bus number of one, it means that if my scientist gets hit by a bus, I have nobody to replace him. That supply chain or that network on my team is not resilient to shock. These conversations about supply chain resiliency and robustness are not just a, you know, we're going to separate everything and you go to your corner and I go to my corner. But I do think that both nations, the United States and China, are recognizing that there is a need to think critically about how we have constructed these supply chains. Let's now turn to perhaps something that the two sides can potentially cooperate on to inject perhaps a bit of optimism into the debate. Can either of you envisage a future of benign competition over technology between the US and China? And what would that require both governments to do? Lindsay, why don't you start? Well, so I do think in the near term, uh, we will potentially and hopefully see less antagonism for the sake of antagonism that we have seen in recent years. But I do expect, you know, as you said, there to be some level of competition. Uh, I think the incoming U.S. administration will be clear-eyed, but, you know, skeptical, particularly on issues of trade and access to technology. So I don't think this is going to necessarily go away anytime soon. Globally, there is a need to address underlying issues and concerns surrounding data governance how we think through privacy and security, what companies are able to do with data, what governments are able to do with data. And this is certainly a conversation that I think there is, is broad global interest in. I think there are also areas where we have not necessarily the same interest, but each nation has mutual interests in cyber physical security with the increasing connectivity of critical infrastructures and utilities for example, autonomous vehicles and Internet of Things, having to think through how do we make these digital systems that have very real physical effects, how do we make them secure by design? Because that is in everyone's interest to have these systems be secure and assured. There is a shared interest, I, I hope, but I do think a shared need to foster dialogue, particularly on technical areas where both parties have that interest in, again, secure and assured systems. So taking artificial intelligence and machine learning, for example, or the concept of AI weapons. We have seen in recent years, I think, positive engagement at the track two level, Michael, through your own organization on issues like AI and ML. That I think were really important to bring together both technical voices, policy voices, to have conversations that are grounded in the reality of the technical details to reach consensus on where both parties agree. 
And that really helped, I think, to demystify some of the hype around these technologies uh, that we see emerging over the horizon. And Yuyang, can the tech community, the folks in academia or industry practitioners, do anything to help more in these common areas of collaboration? We hope so. To tell you the truth, I do not like the word competition to describe the science and technology innovation in human beings' progress. If you read the papers in the top CS conference, no matter in artificial intelligence, crypto system theory, game theory, roughly half of the paper are collaborated by U.S. and China scholars. And at the same time, people from different cultures, not U.S. and China, but also Japan and also East Asia, Arabian, Europe, when we're talking about how can we develop algorithm to improve human beings' welfare, we have different types of angles and ideas. So this is a very important thing for technology innovation for research. It's not a competition. So when we're talking a competition, of course, when we're talking about nuclear technology, there's competition between countries. We can classify technologies into different types and regulate the technologies according to their classification, according to their tiers. For those kind of technologies which can benefit all, just to say goodbye to government, just to let our academia free to collaborate with each other, let's just to clarify what type of computer science and information technologies are the same type of nuclear. We all agree that for that part, we should have regulations, we should have international agreement about the spread like the weapon technologies. But on the other side, when we're talking about recommendation, we're talking about like the short video, like the TikTok. Why should you think this is a strategic technologies just because people downset it? I agree with Lindsay just to leave our academia free for those technologies not touch with security and let us raise funds free from different countries. Let's us collaborate free and conversation free with each other all around the world. Well, there we must end our discussion. Lindsay Shepard and Professor Yu Yang, thank you for being my guests today on the US-China conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Lindsay. And thank you, Mike. I'm very glad to have this kind of conversation. Uh, we have a lot of agreement and uh, we have some conversation. So I hope we can have a further discussion, maybe officially, maybe just privately with some beers. Next time, if after the COVID, I hope I have opportunity to visit DC. I really miss uh, San Francisco. Maybe we can have some beer there. I look forward to that. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Uh, I do believe Yu Yang gave us our tagline for the episode, scientists are people too. It was a pleasure to have you both on the show. And thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Michael Vatikiotis saying goodbye.